Bogleheads Live is our ongoing Twitter space series where the do-it-yourself investor community asks their questions to financial experts live on Twitter. You can ask your questions by joining us for the next Twitter space. Get the dates and times for the next Bogleheads Live by following the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy on Twitter. That's at Bogleheads. For those that can't make the live events, episodes are recorded and turned into a podcast. This is that podcast. This episode was originally recorded on Wednesday, September 28th. Since then, inflation has come down just a bit with this past Thursday inflation report showing 7.7% for the year. And now on to that previously recorded episode. Thank you for joining us for the 29th Bogleheads Live, where the do-it-yourself investor community asks questions to financial experts live. My name is John Luskin, and I'm your host. Our guest for today is Jose Arif. Let's start by talking about the Bogleheads, a community of investors who believe in keeping it simple, following a small number of tried-and-true investing principles. This episode of Bogleheads Live, as with all episodes, is brought to you by the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people make better financial decisions. Visit our newly designed website at BogleCenter.net to find valuable information and to make a tax-deductible donation. Mark your calendars for future episodes of Bogleheads Live. Next week, we'll have Annie Duke answering your questions. She's author of Thinking Bets and How to Decide. You can see the full list of future guests at Bogleheads.org slash blog slash Bogleheads live. Before we get started on today's show, a disclaimer, this is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Shop your light upon as a basis for investment, tax, or other financial planning decisions. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions ahead of time on the Bogleheads forum. We might not have time to answer all of them. Let's get started on today's show with Josef Arif. Josef Arif is a senior portfolio manager for fixed income strategies at Avantis Investors. Josef joined Avantis in 2020. Prior to Avantis, he was an executive vice president and credit portfolio manager at Pacific Investment Management Company, aka PIMCO, for 12 years. He managed a variety of strategies in global high-yield and crossover corporate credit, including several years as a co-manager of the flagship high-yield credit fund. He was an undergraduate degree from the Indian Institute of Technology in Mumbai, an MBA from the University of Chicago, Graduate School of Business, and a master's degree in petroleum engineering from Stanford University. Jose Ferri, thank you for joining us at Ambulgads Live. Let's start with a general catch-all. What do Bogleheads need to know about investing in bonds amidst high inflation? If I can just level set here, John, quickly, there's two components here. One is obviously your income, your coupon from the bond, and the second is the price change as the bond travels on that yield curve. What is a yield curve? Very simply put, it's basically a collection of yields for various maturities. As you think about the yield curve, any bond maturing, let's say, five years' time, becomes a four-year bond after holding it for one year. So the yield for the bond, which you're holding for five years, will change over time as that bond becomes a four-year bond. And if the yield curve is upward sloping, what happens is as the yield of the bond goes down, as the bond pulls towards par, the bond price also will change. Usually, when you think about fixed income or bonds, there's a broad objective people have had in the last many decades. First of all, it's the income generation. Obviously, you have the coupon payments. Also, somewhat of diversification benefit and the last in the portfolio regarding volatility. People think about capital preservation because principal value of the bond, you get it back when the bond matures. And sometimes also you get capital appreciation. 
Now, today's environment is somewhat different in the sense that you had a series of high inflation trends for the last, I would say, year or so. And you've seen the bond market undergo a very high degree of volatility, which has not been the case traditionally. Typically, you see average bond volatility of 4% in the broad U.S. aggregate fixed income market. It's been more like 8% for the last three-month period. So again, highly unusual period for the markets. And a big reason for that is just inflation surprise the markets have seen in the last nine months to one year or so. The one thing when I always think about inflation and the bond market, I think about there is two components. Uh, first is what is the market pricing in today for the forward expectations of both inflation and interest rates? If you look at the five-year forward expectations for inflation, they have been coming down. I would say the five-year break-evens for inflation, they peaked around March of this year at a 3.8%, and they have been falling ever since. So as the market thinks about the Fed's path of interest rates going forward, it also anticipates that inflation will come down over time thanks to those actions being taken by the Fed already. Second thing I would say that's very important is to look at what are my yield curves telling me in terms of what's my expectation for returns from the fixed income market you know, going forward. Hello. Thank you for your time today. Number one is, do you feel that the negativity that you see in the press around the bond market generally is misplaced? And could you maybe characterize the bond market as a bull market in yield? Thanks, David. Just talking about the bond market, and you said it looks like it's a bull in yield. That's obviously been the case lately. When I think about longer-term returns in the bond market, they have been a good alternate to cash over longer holding periods. And this includes the 90s, 2000s, the last decade, and until most recently. This year is a, clearly an outlier. So that's definitely been something to keep in mind for longer term horizons. And then also, I remember years ago, I read a book written by David Svensson, recommended that the only bond you really need is a treasury bond. And that's enough. Take any equity risk in equities and just use treasuries for the bond exposure. The worst returns you've seen for corporates, for example, was in 2008. During that year, you had basically... I would say close to a negative 7% return for the full year because the widening spreads were offset by the yields fall. This year, you've seen close to a negative 14% for corporate bonds return. So it's clearly an outlier year and definitely leads to more interesting outcomes going forward. So that is something to keep in mind. Looking at yield curves is really the most important takeaway from this discussion. I would say really focus on the yield curve because you have the bond math giving you a good window into what's likely to happen all as equal in terms of the cash flows from bonds and how they translate to returns for the next one-year horizon. You can buy a single bond and hold to maturity, and that locks you into that one outcome. But we think about the yield curve, different holding periods for that same bond can have different returns. Depending on how steep the yield curve is, you may get more return in a certain period compared to others. You think about the broad market, it's obviously it's a very large 40 trillion plus market. Within that, treasury bonds have been the fastest growing sector, given the large issuance by the U.S. government for the last three plus decades. One argument focusing on treasury bonds only perhaps does not give the full diversification 
into the market. If you just look at that, it's the biggest issuer right now in the fixed income market. And treasury curves right now also are somewhat inverted. So if you look at short-term yields, they are they're higher than longer-term yields. So two-year, for example, is higher than 10-year. Whereas in corporates, you do have higher yields as you go further out the curve. Five-year corporate bond, for example, yields more than a two-year corporate bond. It's like what I say, it's not one size fits all. Treasury bonds obviously can be attractive part of a portfolio, but if you want the full diversification, if you want to capture the most attractive parts of the yield curve right now, being only in treasury bonds will not give you that diversification or the most optimal outcome for fixed income. John Luskin, your Bogleheads Live host, jumping in for a podcast edit. Josef answers David's question with, you want corporate bonds because they provide diversification. And from Josef's perspective, as a bond portfolio manager, that certainly makes sense. To David's case, as argued by Swentz, when looking at a total portfolio of both stocks and bonds, you may not necessarily need corporate bonds because the risks and returns of corporate bonds are already available in stocks. To learn more, check out David Swenson's book, Unconventional Success. And now back to the show. And then if you could briefly talk about tips, I'd appreciate it. Thank you very much. Tips, really, they give you expectation of inflation and what that translates to in terms of real yields. Whatever the market is currently pricing in for the next two years, five years, 10 years, that will be reflected in the tips pricing today. But obviously, the actual scenarios and the outcomes can be quite different than what is priced in. So then tips can give you more or less returns depending on how the inflation expectations shape up from this point on. This is why I said in the beginning that while inflation trends have been fairly high, this year of later in June and July and again in August, if you look at the tips inflation break-evens, they have not been going higher. They actually peaked in March of this year at close to 3.8% for the five-year tips, and they have been falling ever since. And that's basically also a function of the nominal yields rising as the Fed hiking gets priced into the bond markets. Right now, the Fed forward funds rate gives you terminal rate of around 4.5% by March of next year. And the forward, you know, five-year tips gives you inflation rate, break-even of 2.4%. The market's saying that, yes, the inflation is fairly high, but then going forward, it is supposed to come down as per what's priced into the markets today. Now, that may happen. They may not happen. We don't know. It's very hard to forecast bond markets. But that's what the market right now, the tips market is telling you. You mentioned break-even inflation. For those folks who aren't investing nerds, can you tell us a little bit about what that means? You think about interest rates, two components. There is inflation premium built on top of what we call the real yields. Let's say you have a five-year yield of, call it 4%. If you had inflation of 2%, you had a real yield of 2 because 4 minus 2 is 2. When you buy a TIPS bond, what you're getting is the real yield, which is after inflation. And the TIPS principle will adjust higher or lower depending on how the inflation trends shape up going forward. Here, Josef mentions the word principle. Let's break that down for those who aren't. Bond investing nerds, principle means the value of the bond. And with tips bonds, they adjust the principle for inflation. As inflation increases, so does the value of bond. 
what happens is, as you see inflation expectations rise, the TIPS yields will fall more than treasury yields, which means the gap between the two becomes higher, meaning what is the inflation expectation from the TIPS market also becomes higher. Primarily, it happened last year during the third quarter and the fourth quarter, also during the first quarter of this year. But then they began going higher because of what the Fed was doing. They were hiking rates in March, again in May, June and July. So as the Fed hikes began to get priced into the markets, at some point, the market begins to price the inflation lower and tips real yields begin to rise more than treasury nominal yields. So what's happening right now is the yield between tips bonds and the nominal treasury bonds has begun to compress, meaning converge. And that difference between the two, which is what we call the break-even inflation, has begun to come down. So mathematically, what you're seeing is the market thinks that because of what has happened so far in terms of the central banks in hiking path and QT and all those things, the market expects this difference between the nominal treasuries and the tips yields to compress even further. That is why over the next five-year period, the five-year tips right now is giving you an implied inflation expectation of 2.4%. What should folks be considering in making a decision to purchase TIPS or a plain vanilla treasury bond? TIPS really help you more than treasuries when there is a surprise in the market more than what's priced in. So if the inflation forecast for the next five years for buying, let's say, five-year TIPS, if the five-year inflation forecast began to be higher compared to what was priced in today, then the TIPS will be a better outcome than treasuries, for example. But if the five-year inflation forecast stays the same or keeps falling, then the TIPS outcome will be probably worse than treasuries all else equal. So it all depends on your personal opinion and view and as higher or lower than what the market's pricing in. Because like I said, when inflation comes more of a, as a surprise to the market, like it did last year, three Q4, even parts of Q1 this year, tips do quite well. But when inflation gets priced in, the question becomes at that point, do you expect a further surprise more than what's currently implied by the market yields? I like how you said it. It depends on your view. That's to say, if you think all the investors in aggregate are wrong about expected inflation, then perhaps buying tips makes sense for you. If you think, hey, there's no way inflation is going to be as low as everyone thinks it's going to be, then purchasing tips might make sense. But if you think that tips are overpriced because everyone and their grandmother is terrified of inflation, then perhaps purchasing those regular plain vanilla treasuries may be appropriate in your circumstances. Again, it depends on your view, how you think the market has priced in inflation, and if the market is wrong or right about that. This one is from username Drumboy256, who writes, how can you convince someone that bonds, even in a target date fund that is 30 years out, are worth holding in a well-rounded portfolio? Like I said in the beginning, you know, bonds really serve multiple goals, objectives, any diversified portfolio. They give you income, they give you that portfolio ballast or hedge against economic slowdown. They give you sometimes capital appreciation based upon the yield curve. They also effectively give you a way to preserve capital. In general, if you look at the longer time periods, the last four decades, and despite we have seen 
multiple bouts of inflation. We've seen several credit crises. We've seen several different economic regimes in the last four decades. Bonds have been a positive contributor over the long term to portfolios. I would say from that perspective, bonds do serve an important role in any fixed income portfolio. I think about an individual that I worked with last week. This was a younger gentleman who was targeting fire. And in our engagement together, I noticed that he had a 2050 target date fund in his Facebook 401k. And I mentioned, hey, if you're targeting fire, you might want to consider something with an earlier target date fund, such as 2040, for example. And his question was, can't I just reevaluate that later? And the answer is yes, of course, you can. You can certainly, in eight, 10 years, as was his question, look at that again. But the catch is, in the time between then and now, if stocks underperformed over that next decade, then you would have been better off with that more conservative portfolio that had more bonds. So certainly, you can reevaluate this later, but you risk underperformance in the meantime. Your portfolio composition can also decide the impact of fixed income on that particular situation. Look at a equity versus bond mix in a portfolio. Depending on how equity versus bond, what your mix is, your fixed income may or may not have big enough impact on the overall portfolio volatility. Because equity volatility is higher than bonds. If the portfolio is somewhat more equity heavy, the fixed income you have will not really impact your overall portfolio volatility as much. Compared to, let's say you had a more bond-heavy mix in the portfolio. In that case, what type of fixed income you choose, how risky it is, what kind of allocation of fixed income you have, that will have a bigger impact on the overall portfolio volatility and outcome. Here, Josef makes the point that stocks are more volatile than bonds. That is, normally stocks are going to change in value much more than bonds will. But he goes on to add that if your portfolio is mostly bonds with just a little bit of stocks, at that point, the volatility or the changes in price of the bonds in your portfolio can make a much bigger impact to your portfolio returns than the changes in price of stocks. So if you have a bond-heavy portfolio, you want to be thoughtful about the types of bonds that you choose and the accompanying volatility or the changes in price you can expect from those bonds because that's going to have a much bigger impact on your total portfolio investment returns. This one is from username ER999 who writes, what is the proper duration for bonds? Duration, just to level set, basically think of it as when you expect to receive the cash flows for that particular security or that particular sector. Now, as to the question of what's the right duration to own, it again depends really on someone's personal situation. I would say here, the most critical thing to keep in mind is the right duration to own. The answer is probably not the same for every sector. So if you ask me what is the right point to be on the curve for treasuries, I would say probably a bit shorter, given how the curve looks today. If you ask me what's the right point to be on the curve for, say, corporate bonds, 
It probably go a bit longer because how steep those curves are, even in the intermediate maturity. So again, you have to really look at what are you investing in, what sector of fixing the market, because there is no one size fits all. I think if you own a home which has a multiple rooms, you would not really want to furnish every single room, be it the living room or the bedroom or the kitchen, the same way you'd have different items in those rooms. So same thing here, but you have many different sectors in the fixed income market. It's like almost like a bouquet of flowers. You think about for each particular sector, you have a unique set of outcomes, which is there in that sector's yield curve. So once you have that distinction available to you, you can really figure out what's the right duration for me for every sector. If I had to give one answer for the broad market in general, if you look at the U.S. core fixed income market today, the average duration for that market is about six and a half in that range. So that is what the full market is. But again, within that, the proper duration probably for the treasury market is in perhaps two, two and a half. Corporates, perhaps a bit longer. But again, that is what the market duration is. And depending on the various outcomes for each sector, at the right point could be different for every single bond. And that's key to keep in mind, in my opinion. This question is from username Ferroner who asks about factor tilts and bonds. How should an individual adjust their bond portfolio based on equity factor tilts, such as those that Avantis uses? To me, the overarching factor really is how much equity allocation you have to begin with. More than just the tilts, it's about the sector beta in general. As you know, equity volatility and return potential, they're both higher than fixed income over long periods of time. Typically, equities have yielded about 9-10% returns with a uh, of 16% over many decades or average. With that in mind, because fixed income volatility and returns over longer periods obviously are lower than that, it becomes a question of really how much weight do you have equities compared to fixed income. That to me is the bigger driver of the portfolio outcomes than any chills within that. If your portfolio, like I said before, was more equity heavy, then your ultimate volatility or the overall portfolio outcomes will be driven more by equities, not so much fixed income. So the flavor of fixed income you have in the portfolio, be it riskier or more higher quality, duration-wise, longer, shorter, those particular tilts or those nuances of your fixed income portion will not have that big of an impact on an equity-heavy portfolio. Whereas if you had a more conservative allocation in terms of being more fixed income centric and less equity heavy, those portfolios, yes, the type of fixed income you have, short duration versus intermediate versus long duration risk, how much you have of credit in the portfolio. Yes, all those factors will obviously have a bigger role to play in terms of deciding the overall outcome for both volatility and returns in the portfolio. And we have run various back tests and, you know, on this and look at the last four decades or so and see the max drawdowns in a portfolio. Really, whether you own just a short duration portfolio versus a full market core fixed income ad universe, those really don't make a big difference on your max drawdown if your portfolio is more equity heavy. If it is less and if it's more fixed income tilted, then yes, those differences do have a bigger contribution to your max drawdowns. Said differently, when you have more bonds in your portfolio, the type of bonds matters more. This one is from a username Typical Investor, who writes, I see now that the five-year real yield 
moved recently from negative to 1.5. Yet the five-year treasury is only 3.7%. With inflation measured at 8.5%, how can all this be? What the market's saying is inflation is fairly high right now, but it's expected to come down to that 24 2.5% level over the next five-year horizon. If you look at the 10-year horizon, even longer, for that period, the break-even inflation forecast is even lower. It's at 2.3%. For better or worse, the market right now believes that this CPI trends being so high is temporary phenomena, again, given what is currently priced into the bond markets going forward. Now, the market obviously can be wrong, could be higher, lower inflation. We don't know that. By March of next year, if you look at the forward fixed income, that is being priced into the bond market, and that gives you that inflation being lower. And why is that lower? Because the market's kind of expecting the Fed hikes to cause inflation to come down over time. I think part of the reason we've got some confusion about inflation and the five-year yield is that that 8.5%, that's going to be one-year inflation for last year. But that five-year bond, that five-year treasury, that's paying the 3.7% for the next five years. That's to say, to your point, Josef, that investors in aggregate don't think we're going to see this type of inflation going forward. This question is from username Always Learning More, who asks about municipal bonds. Does Josef have any opinions or insights about the municipal bond market in terms of the relative safety of AA rated bonds or better? And the maximum one should be investing in municipal bonds as a percent of their fixed income portfolio. For example, should I hold no more than 25% of municipals in my bond portfolio? Should I place limits on individual bonds from a certain issuer? Should I place limits on bonds from specific regions? So big picture, think about two things, two dimensions here. The first dimension, obviously, is the credit risk. The municipal default rates are a lot lower for the same rating. It's generally a higher quality market compared to emission grade corporates. We've seen about 0.1% default rates over time in municipals compared to 1% in high grade corporates. Both obviously fairly low, but municipals have that advantage there. Secondly, municipal bonds, obviously, they can be tax-free for some investors. Ultimately, how much allocation to give to the portfolio depends on your personal tax situation, which obviously I cannot comment on, but they should be part of a diversified portfolio. And as to different states and so on, I think it's good to have, a, in general, a very diversified portfolio. The municipal index is a bit more top-heavy in terms of few states dominate the overall market. So again, very critical to have the right diversification diversifying into different sectors, different types of bonds. And again, keeping into account the yield curve is very important for municipals also, just like it is for treasuries and corporate markets. From the Bogots Forums, from username Defuski Nate, bonds can be evaluated from the perspectives of credit risk and term risk. On the credit risk side, does Avantis use their own independent evaluation of credit risk? The question raised was, how do you think about ratings? Ratings typically lag the actual credit outcomes. You've seen it time and again. You saw it back in the, the 08 crisis, where ratings actually were lagged for quite some time. Because the market always tries to price in future credit outcomes much faster than ratings do. And one way you can do that in a process, basically, is to look at different yield curves for different ratings. So you could have, for a given sector, let's take consumer cyclicals, for example, corporate bonds. 
you could have a different yield curve for the sector for different ratings. Single A, double A, or triple B, they all those different sectors within that consumer cyclical space could have their own yield curve. And what you can do is compare the bond in question against all those yield curves and think about does that bond I'm trying to incorporate in my portfolio, does that behave more like its own rating or it behaves more like something of a lower rated bond on the curve? So if a single A bond, if its spread is trading more like a triple B bond, then that is the market implied credit quality for that issuer. And it's like we do in a process, you can build different yield curves by rating and then evaluate every single bond against the yield curves by rating of its sector and decide, okay, you know what? If the market is pricing something else for this particular credit, I should at least respect that try and think about the future outcomes for the credit as the market implies them to be. I would say an active portfolio should do that as a process, looking at all the bonds and trying to evaluate them and make sure that does the bond really behave like what its rating is supposed to be? Or is it more of a quasi-high or a quasi-junk bond? Because indices don't change unless ratings change. Many times what ends up happening is many of these credits which are quasi-high yield, they don't end up leaving the index until it's too late. Anything which basically takes into account a process which relies upon more the market implied ratings can have a more superior outcome compared to just following the ratings of the bond itself. From the Bogots forums, on the term risk side, does their evaluation of call and put provisions on bonds also include looking at information embedded in equity and equity option prices? To comment a little bit, we were talking about call provisions. The bond issuer can pay your bond back in one lump sum if interest rates decrease. Mortgage holders do this all the time. Rates decrease, they refinance, they get a lower rate on their mortgage. They pay less money in interest. A lot of corporate bonds and a lot of municipal bonds will have a call provision allowing those issuers of that debt to do the same. That is a risk for the investor investing in those corporate bonds and those municipal bonds that they'll be paid back all their money immediately losing out on those interest payments. And that's a real risk if interest rates drop. Hence, that is a good reason why you may want to stick to just treasuries, which generally don't have that call risk. If folks want to nerd out on that, they can check out David Swenson's Unconventional Success. I'll link to that in the show notes for our podcast listeners. Many bonds in the fixed income market have this call option, where the issuer can retire the bonds before maturity. And some issuers choose to call their bonds at the call price before. So you have this embedded call option in the bond and you need to account for that. You think about what's my yield or my spread over government bonds for a given corporate security. You have to account for this optionality, what we call the option value of the bond being callable by the issuers. That's very important and we do do that. A question about bond investing for simple passive investors doing asset allocation. The Vanguard portfolio would have a person own the Vanguard Total Bond Market Index Fund with more short-term tips as they approach retirement. Other advice has been that one should just basically hold Vanguard short-term bond index or Vanguard intermediate-term treasury as the basic holding, but to keep the bond portfolio with simple and low-cost funds. What advice would you have for people trying to use that approach to investing in bonds? 
As long as your portfolio relies on transparent, diversified and low-fee vehicles, I think that's a good ultimate goal to have. The one thing I think where indexing is different than a more active approach is indices. Typically, they'll allocate the highest weights or the percentage allocation to companies with the largest amount of debt outstanding. When they do that, they also buy and hold new issues until maturity. So that's how typically a fixed income benchmark runs. What that ends up happening is of this particular construct, issuers, when they issue, usually they want to minimize their cost of capital. If you're a you know, CFO of a company, you want to issue debt when it's obviously cheapest to you. Because the benchmark is following its rules, it will add all those bonds without as much focus on the expected returns of that particular bond. The whole corporate new issuance process or even a treasury issuance really is designed to work more for the issuers. I mean, you've seen this happen in terms of the index composition. The fixed income indices right now are very government bond heavy. And that's been the case in the last few decades because you've seen government issuance far surpass everything else in the market. You end up owning who is the biggest issuer over time. You could perhaps think about, obviously, you want to have transparency, you want to have low fee, but perhaps a more active touch can also be useful in terms of portfolio construction, thinking about the various yield curves, thinking about the construction of the portfolio in terms of risk management. And importantly, using information which is current, because as you've seen, the market can change rapidly and fixed income yield curves can move quite rapidly. You've seen this happen last six months. Now, yield curves were steep in treasuries until last year. Right now, they're inverted. So having that information which is current in the market and using that to incorporate in your portfolio construction, I think can be also useful. Josef, any final thoughts? before I let you go today. Oh, thank you. I think it was great discussion. The questions really you know, highlighted the various challenges and opportunities right now in the fixed income market, which has become quite interesting. Yields obviously have moved a lot higher. So definitely different, interesting environment to investing in, and we'll see how the year shapes up. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you to Josef Ari for joining us today, and thank you for everyone who joined us for today's Bogleheads Live. Next week, we'll have Annie Duke answering your questions about decision-making. Until then, you can access a wealth of information for do-it-yourself investors at the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy at BogleCenter.net. For our podcast listeners, if you could take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to everyone who's helped make this series and successive podcast possible. Barry Barnes, Chris, Tristan Rogers, Jeremy Zook, Andrew Bochamp, Richard Feldman, Ted Chimp, and Zach Foster. Finally, I'd love your feedback. If you have a comment or guest suggestion, tag your host at John Luskin on Twitter. Thank you again, everyone. Look forward to seeing you all again next week. Until then, have a great week.